Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We have a super awesome guest on the phone. This guy. <laughs> oh, wait till you hear it. I'm just going to, we got to give everyone the three, two, one to turn up the volume because this dude has the coolest voice I have ever heard. I'm talking <laughs> like this, this, you should be doing movie trailers. You should be doing voiceover work. You know, you're miles ahead of like movie phone. You're way up there with the voice. I to love the be voice. fair, well, one, you just really aged yourself with movie phone. But to be fair, welcome to movie phone. For new <laughs> films and releases. Fair, please press one. We don't know if he doesn't do voiceover work because well, uh, we actually only just listen, came into contact with this person. We don't know. He, he sounds, could do voiceover. He sounds way too important to do voiceover work. Okay. 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 What do I know? Hey everyone, it's Amanda, and we have Doctor Don on the phone, who is a doctor of chiropractic in New Jersey. And the reason we're talking to him tonight is Mark had just recently discovered no 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 it's not a recent discovery Mm -hmm. it's recently asking people about it so i've heard of this technique i don't know if i should call it a technique i don't even know what to call it i've heard of this thing called manipulations under anesthesia and i've only really seen this for things like frozen shoulder and i can't remember how long ago i've seen this because i've seen this a while back when i started in my earlier days of therapy and then i had the idea let's find someone to come on and talk about this thing because i don't think many people have heard of this thing at least where we are north of the border here and i'm only saying that because when i had the idea for the podcast i actually reached out to a whole bunch of chiropractors a whole bunch of people on linkedin that um well no one on linkedin got back to me i was actually kind of upset by that but i guess i'm not important enough maybe if i had a freaking voice like this guy people go but anyway which way and so i asked a whole bunch of colleagues do you know anyone that does this or can you point me in the direction that someone would know about this and i was met with a whole bunch of huh i have no idea what you're talking i've never heard of this can you tell me about this which i thought was really interesting because i know this as more of a chiropractic thing or like an orthopedic surgeon type of thing which really baffled me why every chiropractor i asked had never heard of it i'm like i'm a massage therapist kinesiologist and i heard about this a while back you're a practicing chiro for you know decades how come you don't know this so that's when the green light just went on i'm like we really got to have someone on the podcast to talk about this because you know what? It could be interesting. Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend I had any idea that it actually existed because when Mark said to me, hey, guess what? I got somebody who is willing to come on our an episode and talk about manipulations under, under anesthesia. I said, what are you talking about? So enter Dr. Don. Thank you for uh, hanging out with us so late tonight. I know you said it's past your bedtime, right? Trust me, it's my pleasure. I I appreciate the opportunity to share the information. And you do have a movie voice, sir. I don't know how you never got work doing voiceovers. Or You know what? I imagine you to be the guy that was like, the latest updates in coronavirus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in actuality, uh, since you said it, I did do voiceovers. uh, (laughs) And uh, it really didn't, I, you know, you should bloom where you're planted. It didn't really work out for me. Uh, they had me reading scripts that um, were not the most exciting material in the world. And and my last ad or commercial that I did was uh, I had only had four hours of sleep. And it was for some company that made uh, leather products and embossed them with initials and things like that. So it was a little dry and <laughs> without the sleep and so on and so forth, I... Uh, Took me a couple of hours to do a forty-five minute read, and um, <laughs> the uh, the gentleman that I was working with didn't call me after that. So it was a little uh, a little sad for me, but uh, nonetheless, I'm I'm happy where I am right now, doing what I'm doing. So, all right, well, let's start right at the beginning. Then, could you, for everybody listening, give a uh, brief introduction about yourself, uh, your education, uh, how long you've been practicing as a chiropractor, what your practice looks like now and then we'll get into this uh manipulations under under anesthesia topic which i'm still baffled that this really exists but you think that it's crazy that i don't know that it really exists so this is going to be fun well i think it'll be pleasantly surprising when we find out some of the information i am uh, a chiropractor as you mentioned um i graduated from sherman college uh eons ago 1983 uh, so I'm, I'm quite old, but not 
too old to do the procedure. Uh, I went to Fordham University undergrad study. Uh, after that, I went to, as I said, Sherman College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, studied there for three years, graduated magna cum laude. And um, from there, from that point, I started practicing in New Jersey in uh, 1984 after working for about a year as Dean of Continuing Education at the college. Um, and then after that, I, I practiced uh, here in New Jersey for about 12 years. I moved to Florida. I worked down there for about eight and a half years. I was introduced to MUA at that point. And um, I was actually flying back and forth between Florida and New Jersey uh, doing procedures and teaching the techniques. Um, ultimately, because of education for our children, we, we moved back to New Jersey about 16 years ago. And uh, I have continued to uh, to do that. I've continued to both uh, teach and do the procedure. I uh, was lucky enough to have the opportunity to be awarded a fellow of the Royal College of Chiropractic Medicine and a fellow of the American Board of Chiropractic Specialists, which are wonderful titles. Um, <laughs> uh, they don't get me into any place special, um, but... Uh, you still got to wait in line? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it, it, is, it is an honor to do those things and, and uh, to be participating uh, with those groups. So that's a little bit about my background in education. Uh, as I said, I've been teaching uh, the procedure for, um, I guess, about uh, 16 years now. I've taught in excess of a thousand doctors is probably, I don't know, maybe 1200 varying specialties, uh, including orthopedic surgeons, chiropractors, neurologists, internal medicine physicians, pain management physicians, uh, a whole gamut of different uh, types of specialties. Um, and I've done the procedure probably in excess of three to 4,000 times. I, you know, you lose count after a while. So um, but anyway, so that's uh, a little bit of the background. Well, I want to go uh, a little further back as well. What made you decide to get into chiropractic in the first place? You know, when you watch sitcoms and it seems that doctors, like medical doctors, it's, I, I don't know, it's probably a sitcom thing. It's like medical doctors are always making fun of the chiropractors. Like you couldn't get into med school. Is that really the way it is? You watch a little States? too much Two and a Half Men. I think it's that's not what just it is. that. I mean, <laughs> even, hey, even on Friends, you know, I'm a huge fan of Friends. Even on Friends, Rachel's dad, who was a medical doctor, made fun of her for going to a chiropractor. Is that really the attitude that exists? Sounds like an NBC thing. Or is that just or is that, is that just a sitcom thing? Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have had a chance to not only deal with that issue, but work with uh, physicians as well. So when, when I started, and uh, I guess I can really say back in the day, there was uh, a prejudice, uh, clearly, uh, against chiropractors by medical physicians, which was kind of sad. And I, I happened to have my, my father's uh, best friend was a medical physician. But I, I for, for me, I first of all, I needed something that made sense, a model that made sense for me. And what was sensible about chiropractic was that instead of dealing with the results of bodies that were not functioning well, we looked at the cause of what were a cause of what was uh, causing them to not function well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that appealed to me. I had always wanted to do something. I actually started when I was in Fordham uh, as a pre-dent major. Uh, I wanted to be the painless dentist because my dentist growing up was, um, he really should have changed his name to Dr. Payne. <laughs> um, but uh, no, no, I think that was my dentist. No, no, yeah, that again, was my dentist. Anytime you guys talk dentist, the only thing I think of again is Little Shop of Horrors, Steve Martin. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that comes to my mind. You know, my childhood dentist, I'm telling you, and you wouldn't know any better because when you're a child, you go to the dentist that your parents take you to, right? So I just assumed that was what dentists did. And it wasn't until I became old enough to decide I'm going to find a new dentist. I'm going to go elsewhere that I realized that my childhood dentist was sadistic. Like this man just terrorized my mouth. I almost feel awful. like it's a prerequisite. <laughs> Well, that, that was unfortunately the same experience. Uh, I mean, he was uh, probably a very wonderful man. Um, I was uh, a child, I am a child of, of the 50s, and um, my father was in the Navy. And so one of his Navy buddies uh, happened to be a, a dentist. And so, of course, 
I guess, expecting a, a special treatment or discount or whatever, uh, we would make the uh, trek uh, over the mountain and across the river uh, from uh, New Jersey to New York, and um, we would be treated by this gentlemen. And, and unfortunately, I, I had four younger sisters and uh, they would usually go first, ladies first. And the screaming uh, that I heard was, uh, no pun intended, chiropractically so unnerving that by the time it was my opportunity to go, um, I had already swept through a t-shirt, shirt, and whatever <laughs> else I was wearing. So it was not a pleasant experience. So I, I wanted to be uh, somebody who was Perhaps a little more compassionate, but again, the main thing was was when I looked into chiropractic, what I found was that it made sense to me, and and that's really important when you're doing anything uh, that you're uh, passionate about it, and of course that it makes sense, and so that's really how I got started. Uh, when I was introduced to it uh, by a, uh, a friend of mine, went to the chiropractor, found out what uh, they were about, and uh, struck a nerve. No, uh, <laughs> you can't help but make chiropractic dad jokes, can you? Like it's uh, in I'm your blood. You, it's, really, it's, really, it's, it's bad. Well, when you're doing this as long as I have been, um, you know, after a while, your material runs a little dry. So uh, <laughs> my wife usually tells people, please don't encourage them, and, and please don't, you know. <laughs> Uh, laugh at any of his jokes or, you know, he needs new material and so on. So Well, Mark's a relatively new dad. I mean, his his kids are almost six and almost three. And um, I just told him the other day, I said, oh, you're getting really good at this dad joke thing, eh? They're getting cheesier and cheesier by the day. I feel like my lifestyle of being a father finally caught up to me doing dad jokes years ago. It's true. You're always kind of a dad with no kids. And now here they are. Okay, Dr. Don. So let's Let's sort of jump right into this because the MUA, uh, Manipulations Under Anesthesia, as I said, I had never heard of it, but I might just be a little bit out to lunch and missing out on things. So let's let's jump right into this. Can you, for anybody listening, just as easily as possible, explain exactly what this means and what it is you're doing? I mean, the title kind of gives it away, but I want to hear it from you. Um, the title, actually, in my mind, is, is a bit of a misnomer. Um, what do you know? We do call it manipulation under anesthesia. Um, and of course, hearing that I'm a chiropractor, you would automatically think that it's uh, a chiropractic procedure. It's chiropractic manipulation. Uh, and therefore, you know, we call it manipulation under anesthesia. However, that's not true. Probably about 85% of the procedure is soft tissue work. Um, uh, about only you know, 10, 15% of it is actual osseous manipulation. So, you know, the, the name, as I said, uh, doesn't necessarily indicate what it's all about. Uh, the procedure itself is is not new. Um, it's been around, believe it or not, it was pioneered in the 1930s by osteopathic physicians. Probably in the early 80s, uh, chiropractors learned about the procedure and had the opportunity to expand on it, as you had rightly said, most of the manipulations that were done early were done for joints that had some sort of fibrotic tissue buildup, um, a shoulder or a knee, usually post-surgically, but oftentimes uh, just as a result of a trauma or something like that. Uh, therein lies the, the key to this whole procedure. Uh, the underlying condition is in actuality fibrotic tissue or scar tissue uh, that forms in muscles and joints. And when this fibrotic tissue forms, I ask the doctors when I'm training them, how many of you think that scar tissue is a bad thing? And the ones that aren't sleeping oftentimes will raise their hands. Of course, I correct them and say, no, it's, it's not a bad thing because it's a part of the healing process and it knits us back together again. So it's a very critical and important part of the healing process. That being said, when the fibrotic tissue does not form in areas that uh, it should be, or uh, if it forms in such a way so as to inhibit the functionality of that tissue, that's when it, it becomes a problem. So uh, just quickly, um, what we do is we bring patients into the operating room or procedure room. Uh, we have an anesthesiologist working on a team, and this is a team approach type of procedure. It requires two physicians to do the actual procedure plus an anesthesiologist and OR nurse. Um, so at least four people are involved. 
And what we do is we have the anesthesiologist put the patient to sleep. Uh, the doctors then begin a very careful stretching of the areas that are in difficulty. And um, it's, it's truly a remarkable, uh, a remarkable procedure. The first patient I'll never forget that I did told me that she had had back pain for 31 years. And uh, after we did the procedure the first time, she said it was the first time she woke up without any back pain. So pretty significant. And that's, that's kind of been the track record. I mean, we, uh, we teach every area of the body. We teach full spine, cervical, thoracic, lumbar spine, pelvis. We do shoulders, uh, elbows, wrists, knees, hips, ankles, uh, and all with great success, uh, provided, of course, that uh, through our uh, analytical process to begin with, we determine that the patient is actually a good, safe candidate for the procedure. We move forward, and uh, nine times out of ten, patients have a, a very good result, um, and that's followed up with post-procedural uh, rehab for usually six to eight weeks. That's it. The patient usually is restored to a hopefully pre-accident or pre-incident status, and they are able to continue their their life uh, without pain, uh, uh, restoring their normal daily activities, whether it's uh, something simple, doing gardening or working around the house or uh, taking care of kids or on to athletics. Uh, a number of the doctors that I've trained work for professional sports teams. Uh, some guys in Florida that I've trained work with uh, hockey teams, uh, uh, football teams, Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, I trained a guy who worked uh, for uh, up in, in Green Bay, uh, worked with the Packers and worked with some hockey teams up there. So uh, it's it's a very exciting uh, opportunity to bring a, a very effective procedure uh, to these different uh, areas of need. So what makes a patient an ideal candidate for this? What are those characteristics that you kind of hinted at earlier? Well, um, the characteristics typically are someone who uh, had a, uh, a life prior to an incident where they um, you know, were carrying out normal uh, activities. Uh, something happens, uh, car accidents, sports injuries, falls, work-related issues, um, or uh, even just repetitive activities of some sort uh, that create in the body a uh, an area of fibrotic tissue buildup. It can also be, of course, post-surgical, as I mentioned. When we look at that patient, we, we do a, a variety of different uh, testing, uh, including range of motion tests, uh, orthopedic neurological tests. Uh, we take into account their activities of daily living and how this is affecting their conditions. Uh, they must have a, a course of uh, some sort of therapeutic uh, treatment, either physical therapy and or chiropractic, something conservative. Oftentimes, the patients go on to uh, even more invasive activities, whether it's pain management uh, or surgeries or, or that, that type of activities. Uh, so we try to intervene before uh, things get to the point where they, the patient would need a surgery. but And, and as far as safety goes, uh, we want to make sure that there's uh, no conditions that exist in the patient that would make it dangerous. For example, some sort of osseous pathology, cardiovascular problems, problems with uh, breathing, uh, respiratory problems, things like that, cancers, um, infections, and things like that. So, you know, we try to evaluate the patient in such a way. And we also, of course, have medical doctors, medical physicians evaluate the patients before uh, we do the procedure. Is this a highly sought after therapy where you are? Is it very costly? And is this a type of therapy that um, is subject to a lot of criticism or is it highly regarded? Like, as I said, I know nothing. So I just want to understand, like, do people who are going through these types of either post-surgical rehab or, you know, anything, like you said, people who've got some sort of fibrous buildup and they're, they've got lack of mobility, are they immediately thinking, let me contact somebody who does this type of work and get myself um, evaluated to see if I'm a candidate? Or is this something that is a little bit under the radar where you are? Um, well, where I am, it is not as under the radar as it is in the majority of other areas in the country um, and, and in the world. I mean, I, we have trained uh, people in Central America. We've trained 
I, I remember a doctor flying over from Dubai and taking the course. Uh, so there is some international interest and in that sort of thing. But I live in the New York metro area, and there is a uh, a large demand, if you will, for the procedure, especially uh, for patients who have suffered some sort of trauma, whether it's, as I mentioned before, falls or auto accidents or things like that. There there have been some issues when I first started out doing the procedure. It's very interesting. Um, insurance companies, uh, commercial insurance carriers uh, would pay for the procedure. We would uh, identify candidates. We would go and do the procedure. Uh, they would go through their rehab process. Uh, as a physician, you you like to uh, be paid, so we would send a an invoice into the insurance company, and they would pay the bill, and essentially no questions asked. Um, unfortunately, what has happened is any time that there is a, a procedure that pays and pays well, interestingly, uh, then it lends itself to perhaps uh, overuse or abuse, and so that occurred. And so New York and New Jersey, where I am, they kind of placed limits on the uh, fees for the procedures. And a lot of guys who were abusers then uh, ultimately went away because they felt as though they weren't making enough money. And it was thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, uh, which was uh, very inappropriate. So now the fees are are far more reasonable, and the insurance companies do pay for the procedure. Uh, Sometimes we have to wrestle them to the ground uh, before they're willing to pay. Um, Initially, they started out after that honeymoon period uh, saying that the procedure was investigational and experimental, which I thought was interesting because they had been paying for the procedure, uh, which you would think, hey, at that point, it was still investigational and experimental, but they they were paying for it. And then as it became more popularized and more physicians were doing it, more patients were getting taken care of, uh, suddenly it became experimental and investigational. Ultimately, uh, as is the case, uh, in uh, those cases are brought to uh, court, to uh, arbitrators to determine whether or not that's accurate. And ultimately, they were continuing to lose the cases based on that argument. So the argument then went to medical necessity. Well, you can certainly do the procedure, but our experts feel as though the procedure was not necessary. And so we battled that for a while. And interestingly, as I said, I've trained many physicians. Oftentimes, physicians will come in um, and they are sent or um, they participate with an insurance company uh, as reviewers, peer reviewers, and they will get trained uh, so that they can then review the cases and, and oftentimes deny them. So it, it's an ongoing battle. Of course, there are patients that we uh, do for cash, uh, and that's a relationship that we would have with the uh, surgical center. Uh, whatever their fees are, plus whatever our fees are, yields the cash price uh, for the patient. So that's uh, the economic side. As as far as you know, popularity. Uh, as I said, it, it's unfortunate. Everything is related to education. I'm sure that where you are, as where I am, uh, everybody knows you're supposed to go to the dentist. Uh, every six months, as we mentioned dentists earlier, and get checkups, and you're supposed to floss and brush and, uh, you know, do all of these things, use a, some sort of a rinse and everything to uh, avoid gum disease and that sort of thing. Well, how do we know all those things? And everybody knows it. Uh, four out of five dentists, uh, you know, recommend try that. So uh, <laughs> how do we know all of these things? And uh, it's all ads and education and education campaigns done by these different groups. And um, as far as what we're doing, there are not as many people involved. Of course, any ad campaign like that would cost uh, quite a bit of money. So what we have done is more of a ground roots thing where, or grassroots thing, pardon me, where we're educating the physicians and then having them go out and hopefully educate not only their patients, but then other physicians who then want to come and take the training. And that's how it builds. Um, so that, that's how it's been going. We also have a, a national and, and I suppose international uh, group called the uh, AAMUAP, which is the, is the American Association of MUA Providers and uh, a board and, and uh, uh, groups of people. Uh, and it's not just the chiropractors or medical doctors. There's uh, attorneys, uh, there are nurses, there are lay people, uh, all who are giving input to making appropriate decisions as far as how the procedure goes, uh, safety issues, and so on and so forth, education issues. Uh, That's why it was created in the first place, in order to 
Uh, make sure that the level of education, because there were a lot of pop-up classes going on where I might train a doctor and all of a sudden he thinks he's an expert and then he goes and, and starts his own class and, and tries to train doctors. So uh, we wanted to make sure we were asked by several uh, educational institutions if we would form a, a an overseeing body that would uh, review these classes or these uh, teachers' curriculums and, and see if they uh, were appropriate. Uh, we did that. Uh, in addition to that, we uh, recently, a few years ago, did a Delphi panel review, which uh, was again uh, done by a variety of, of different uh, specialties that ultimately came to a consensus of information, uh, which then resulted in our publishing uh, national guidelines for the procedure. Uh, that was done through a group that was a subsidiary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So uh, we have been moving along. It's, it's been a plodding movement, but uh, we have been moving forward. Uh, we have uh, more docs every day, every month, every year joining the AAMUIT. And uh, ultimately, we, we want to be able to uh, help surgery centers uh, regulate the procedure and uh, improve overall outcomes and safety for patients and for physicians as they do the procedure. Is it typical that there is always a chiropractor present when this is happening? Or is it possible that you can go in for a procedure and it's, you know, two physicians or two surgeons and there's no chiropractor present? Well, that's a great question. And um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a chiropractor involved. I have trained osteopathic physicians who have manipulative skills. And um, oftentimes they will work together. But the ideal situation uh, is having someone who is able to perform the obvious manipulation portion of the procedure. And oftentimes uh, medical physicians uh, are, are not skilled in that because they haven't been trained. So uh, it's, it's great if you have a team. As I said, it's a team approach. So if you have chiropractor, a couple of chiropractors, chiropractor and an MD, chiropractor and a DO, a couple of DOs doing the procedure, you know, the main thing is working together for the benefit of the patient. So if you feel as though as a physician, you are not skilled enough to uh, handle all of the, uh, the and it, it is an intricate and uh, involved procedure. Uh, if you cannot do that, then, then certainly you need help. You know, uh, orthopedic surgeons are trained uh, in uh, MUA. It's usually, as we said, in, in larger joints. They're not trained in spine, but they are trained in shoulder and hip and, and knee. Uh, the unique thing about that is um, if, for whatever reason, the, the patient doesn't respond well, uh, they can always do a surgery. Mm -hmm. Or if they're maybe too aggressive or... Um, you know, there's uh, tears in the joints or something like that, which we consider a contraindication, they can go in and repair those where we can't. So uh, the team approach is really effective and uh, and the safest and I think best way to, uh, to get a, a great outcome for the patient. Can you possibly give me a, a, a word picture of this procedure? So the reason I'm asking is when Mark first brought this idea to me and said, we're going to interview somebody who does manipulations under anesthesia and I said, what is that, of course? And he said, well, if the person's under anesthesia, you can just kind of crank on a joint. I'm like, what? what? Like, what are you saying to me? <laughs> so can you sort of give me an idea what this looks like? Like, is it surgical? Is there any, you know, are we cutting people open? Are we actually just doing very aggressive soft tissue work? Are we cranking on joints? Like, explain to me in, in the best way you can, what a procedure possibly looks like. Well, well cranking on joints sounds very scary to me. It's very scary. Um, <laughs> I certainly don't do that in, in my office, in my practice. No, the, the idea is that by using anesthesia, and I don't know if you've been to the chiropractor before, I think you said you had. Oh, yes. A, my chiropractor yeah. used to be my best buddy. Like, I mean, I was two, three times a week. And uh, since we're all locked up and I can't see anybody. I'm just, you know, like an 80 year old woman and I'm 36, Dr. Don. This is upsetting. <laughs> 36. Huh? That's, that's very old. Oh. <laughs> I often, a kid that I, I have uh, canvases that are older than you. But that being said, um, my um, back to the cranking on joints. Okay. First of all, when we use anesthesia, the idea of using the anesthesia, and we use a, a very mild form of anesthesia, if you will, it's not conscious sedation. Um, but what we do is uh, we use propofol and Versed. Propofol, uh, you may have heard of. It's a, a white 
substance. Uh, some people kiddingly call it milk of amnesia. It's a hypnotic, and um, it's often used in dental work, and it's often used in colonoscopies and that sort of thing. Very nice. It, it uh, puts the patient to sleep very quickly. They breathe on their own. They don't have to be intubated. Um, and they go down very quietly and quickly within about 30 seconds to a minute. Um, we then do the procedure, which I'll explain in a moment. And then um, they wake up very quickly um, once it's stopped being administered. Usually within 5 to 15 minutes, the patient is, is uh, waking up and um, they feel as though they had a great sleep. So it's a very nice uh, medication, if you could call it that. It's anti-emetic, which means that you don't have the post-procedural nausea that uh, some of the more potent general anesthetics uh, create. Patient usually uh, afterwards, since they haven't had anything to eat for, uh, we tell them nothing to eat or drink after midnight. So uh, they've been fasting for a period of time, but they wake up, they have a a good appetite afterwards. So there's none of the things that you would expect with an anesthesia uh, type situation which is great. That really lends itself to quick recovery for the patients and uh, also the safety factor itself, because typically we don't have patients who experience issues with anesthesia. Uh, And when they hear anesthesia, they're thinking general anesthesia, um, where they're knocked out and and they're going to have to be intubated and not breathe on their own and and so on and so forth. So that also increases the safety factor for the procedure as well. And, And basically what we do is once the patient has uh, fallen asleep, if you will, Uh, what that does is it eliminates uh, or certainly reduces the guarding influence of the postural muscles and the skeletal muscles so that uh, normally, as as you know, um, when you have gone to the chiropractor, if he is a a manual osseous adjuster, he does some quick uh, movements which uh, release joints that are uh, locked up or are not moving properly. And um, so that guarding influence, you know, you feel kind of tense and then he uh, says count to three and he he adjusts you on one while you're busy counting to three or, uh, you know, uh, move your left foot and and then he adjusts you or whatever because he's distracting you and he uses something called a a high velocity, low amplitude type of movement. Um, So it means it's very quick, but uh, very uh, short range into the joint itself. With this procedure, there is no guarding. So therefore, we don't have to use any high-velocity type movements, which again lends itself uh, to the safety of the procedure. Um, so we can uh, move uh, joints uh, very, very easily because the patient is busy being unconscious. Um, <laughs> and so no, no guarding. Therefore, uh, you know, they don't resist. And so things move very easily as far as the osseous side goes. Um, And we also go through a series of different stretching movements. Typically, we start in the cervical spine if we are doing a a spine work and the patient has cervical issues. Uh, Mainly, we start there to to get out of the way of the anesthesiologist because they are in control of of everything that goes on. And uh, their biggest concern, of course, is, is the head. Uh, so we want to get out of their way as quickly as possible. And, and basically what we're doing is just stretching through ranges of motion to try to restore normal movements uh, in the joints and normal stretchability of the muscles, as, as you may or may not be aware. Maybe as a massage therapist, uh, you may be aware. I was just about to say, Mark, can you imagine working <laughs> with some of our clients who were not guarding and who were not holding and who we could actually just move where we wanted them to move? That would be an easy day at work. My job would be so much easier. <laughs> Jesus. It, it's really exciting and, and, and it works really well. So uh, as we go through these stretching movements, as I said, we try to restore normal movement to those particular areas. And as we stretch them, the fibrotic tissue in the musculature and in the joints changes. Uh, it is either, I'll say, altered or broken up in some way. And then we go through on from the cervical spine down into the thoracic spine, lumbar spine, pelvis, um, and any extremity joints that need to be worked on. And, and that's it. The, the procedure itself takes depending on if you're, if you're going to do full spine or full spine and extremities or whatever, it probably takes about 15 or 20 minutes. I kiddingly tell the doctors, uh, uh, oftentimes they are from 
here in America. So I tell them, you're Americans, you're not Russian, so please don't rush through the procedure. Uh, it's not something that uh, is to be done quickly. It's done slow, uh, slowly, carefully, methodically, and appropriately for that particular patient. This way, again, safety factors. I, I know I've said safety about a half a dozen times so far, but for me, that's the most important thing. Would you say that this type of work is in fact safer than your typical day-to-day chiropractic adjustments? Would you say they're on par or would you say we're, I'm comparing apples and oranges right now? Well, it is essentially apples and oranges uh, in the following way. Um, I think that when you have a patient who has a condition uh, that is not responding well uh, to the uh, therapy and or procedures that you're doing in office. Uh, they need something different. They need something more aggressive. As I was mentioning before, uh, muscles can stretch to 120% of their normal resting length by the way that the, the they are designed, if you will, uh, constructed so that the fibers of the muscles can slide across each other. Uh, and that gives that elasticity to muscles. Well, you can imagine if there was an influx of fibrotic tissue in there, suddenly you're going to lose that stretchability and elasticity of the musculature. But as far as uh, the procedure itself, it is it is apples and oranges because, you know, when I'm working in the office, the procedures that I do, the, the techniques that I use are very, uh, very quick, quick movements and things like that. This is more methodical. Anytime that there is anesthesia involved, even something as less hard harmful, if you will, as propofol and or Versed, um, there's still uh, the, the off chance that the patient could stop breathing. I mean, it's interesting. It is an anesthetic that causes anesthesia. Well, sometimes the patients forget to breathe. Thankfully, the, the movements that we do oftentimes will stimulate them uh, to, uh, to continue to breathe. But of course, the anesthesiologist is always there to, to make sure and ensure that everything is fine. And as I said, I've done the, the procedure uh, somewhere in excess of 3,000 to 4,000 times. And we have never, thank the Lord, had a, a negative incident at all. Uh, the worst outcomes that ever happen is that the patient really has very little benefit. But the majority of the times, the benefit is, is very, uh, very high. I'm getting the sense that this sounds like kind of a last resort type of scenario. Am I wrong in, in thinking that? Or is this ever like the first line of treatment? Like someone comes in presenting a certain way with a certain condition and you're like, you know what you know what you need? You need this. Or is it kind of like, let's try more conventional therapy first? Well, it's not exactly a last resort. I would say it's an intermediary step. We always start a patient off with some sort of conservative therapeutic care. So they would go through at least six to eight weeks of chiropractic care and or six to eight weeks of therapeutic care, physical therapy of some sort. And if the patient is is not responding well, they might go to pain management uh, or they might have some uh, sort of attraction or or something like this, some, you know, some other maybe more aggressive steps. I, I think the last resort ever would be a surgical intervention. Yeah. This, this as uh, you had asked earlier, uh, it is actually billed um, as a surgical procedure. They are surgical codes, but it is non-invasive. So there, there is no... Uh, open reduction of any condition or whatever. But again, it depends on the condition of the patient. So as I said, patients have different types of problems. If we have somebody who has a frozen shoulder, uh, they would probably have seen an orthopedic surgeon or their family physician or whatever. They they went through a course of uh, physical therapy. Um, it's not improving. So what do you do after that? Um, surgery is is not appropriate. Uh, so what happens? What do you do? Some patients will go to their orthopedic surgeon who does an MUA, a manipulation under anesthesia. We uh, we use a, a variety of, of techniques. Uh, the orthopedic surgeons are trained. Um, their movements are very quick and aggressive. We do probably about um, 13, 14 different movements in the shoulder. Uh, that's what I teach. Uh, because the shoulder is the most mobile joint in the body. So there's a variety of different movements that we have to do to cover all of the areas of movement so that they get a very full recovery. And as I said, afterwards, all the patients need to go for post-procedural physical therapy for at least six to eight weeks, where orthopedics would typically do shoulder, knee, or or hips. Uh, We do smaller muscles, spine, smaller joints, 
uh, and things like that. So it, it depends on the condition, but they do have to have some sort of prior conservative care first. And then uh, following that, they they can come in and, and have the procedure evaluated and have the procedure if it's called for. So it sounds like the patients that you see, well, not sounds like, the patients that you see are obviously in far worse condition than, you know, me going to see my chiropractor because my thoracic spine isn't as mobile as it should be because I have two kids, don't exercise as much as I should, and am pretty lazy for the most part. <laughs> um, but should when... first. <laughs> <laughs> when I go see my chiropractor, for example, I go in with very specific like I mean her and I have a good relationship I can say you know my c2 needs you my t7 like I you know I go in there knowing what I need she does her adjustments I instantly feel better you said you get very positive outcomes with your patients is there sort of an instant relief or is it like they wake up they feel exactly the same but then you know throughout the six to eight weeks of physio they start feeling the results or do a lot of people actually say almost instantly after the procedure like I feel very different. Well, that's a great question. And, and we have had uh, patients who have felt so great afterwards that they go home and either later in the day or the following day, they're out doing yard work or they're out playing golf. And, and we advise them highly against that. As you uh, may remember, I mentioned that the, the procedure or the, pardon me, the, the fibrotic tissue is important in the body as part of the healing process. And one of the most important things uh, about it is that it it um, creates a stability in the tissue that's injured. So right. when we go in and we change or alter that fibrotic tissue area, now that area is vulnerable to re-injury. So the patient feels great, oftentimes, the majority of times, and they go and uh, do something that they shouldn't, whether they go back to the gym and they're lifting or they're back to work and it's a physical job or they're going on playing sports and everything, they can re-injure themselves very easily. And I've seen that happen. Uh, and that's why I've mentioned about the physical therapy part of things. Yeah. Um, but typically, the patients do not feel the same when they wake up. Uh, the majority of patients, and, and I'll, I'll use the percentages that I uh, use when I'm, I'm teaching the class, about 25% of the patients uh, and this is borne out by an, a number of studies that have been done, have absolutely no pain, no symptoms, and feel restored to their normal selves immediately. About 50% of the patients uh, say they are dramatically improved. So we're looking at about 75% of the cases who say they are dramatically better. About 20% of the cases say, I'm better, but not what I was hoping for. And about 5% of the cases really don't have the results that they, they were looking for. Those are pretty good numbers. I mean, we learned a little bit oh, about yeah. the history from you before. Like, this is not a new procedure. And obvious, obviously, there's been some research involved. So it's not like you guys are going in there blindly. I mean, if I if I knew there was a procedure available, if I had you know, super fibrotic tissue somewhere and I had a lack of mobility or pain or whatever. And there was a procedure that, you know, 95% of the time showed some results. I, th I think I'd sign up for it. How long is the education involved in this and what are the prerequisites for it? Well, um, what we do is, is we, we have a, a class that is 36 hours of, of training. Um, usually about 18 hours of it is, uh, didactic, it's, it's lecture, uh, about 12 hours of technique, and usually about six hours of literature review. We give an exam also, and we go through the uh, with the doctors and show them how to do the procedure. Um, and of course, everybody grasps it differently. Um, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you said you have chiropractic experience and you love the chiropractor that you go to. You may have gone to a number of different docs and, and some are better at it than others in the same way that there are better surgeons, better dentists, better neurologists, and so on and so forth. So so some docs have um, exceedingly great abilities and, 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 and some are average and, and some are below average. So, uh, but the training itself uh, is a 36-hour course. And um, we try to do that in uh, three to four days uh, of training uh, because the doctors oftentimes can't take uh, time away from their practices or extended periods of time. Um, but then, of course, we, we always urge them to work with someone they know who does the procedure or come back and, and work with us um, to improve their level of expertise. Um, but really, it's it's like anything else. Um, I'm sure that when you started out as a massage therapist, you 
had a grasp, no pun intended, of, of, of what you were you're doing. You had ideas and things like it's that. It's okay to say we sucked. You... It's okay. We did. We probably did. <laughs> no. <but> we sucked. <laughs> no, when we started, we sucked. It's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't say suck, but but you weren't as uh, much of an expert as you are now. Uh, you weren't and perhaps as comfortable doing what you're doing as you are now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't recognize certain things that you recognize now. And that's just a, a combination of time and the amount of patients that you're seeing, a variety of different things and so on. And then, of course, added study, perhaps. And, and I know that you may take additional seminars to learn additional techniques. Uh, I call them arrows in the quiver. You know, this is for uh, docs that are, are learning this procedure. I consider it to be another arrow in the quiver. Patients who reach a certain point, they plateau in their care. Where do they go from there? Uh, especially the injury patients. Well, uh, we can continue to uh, adjust them, um, you know, continue palliative care. Uh, we can release them. Sorry, uh, Mary Jones, that's uh, that's as far as we can bring you, you know, uh, good luck and, and have a great life. Or we send them off to a, another type of specialist, uh, you know, an orthopedist or uh, a surgeon or a neurologist or, or whoever. We refer them out to somebody else and they're gone. In this particular case, what's great is, there's an opportunity to, if the patient reaches a plateau uh, in their care and their progress, then we have an opportunity to do something different uh, for them. And, and that that difference is is a, a procedure that is is readily available and quite successful. We've talked a lot about the benefits, which is great because, as I said, I didn't know much about this procedure to begin with, but. Talk to me a little bit about the risks. Obviously, with anything, I understand this is non-invasive, but with anything, there are risks associated. So what is it that you talk to your patients about before deciding that this is the route that you need to go? Well, uh, first and foremost, um, when I'm talking to them is, uh, you know, we mentioned about the the possibilities where, you know, we have them sign an informed consent. And in that consent, it might mention that, you know, the result of the procedure uh, could uh, be an area of fracture or uh, uh, soft tissue injury or something like that. It's rare. Um, it has happened. I have heard about it. And, and as I said, I've done the procedure thousands of times and never had any negative incidents. Um, it, it, and, and I liken it to, uh, unfortunately, we don't have it right now, uh, your, your Blue Jays and so on, but we have no baseball season. But I liken it to baseball where uh, you're up to bat. Uh, if you swing at every pitch, chances are your batting average is going to be very low. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're selective in the pitches that you swing at, uh, your batting average is going to be much higher. And that's the same thing with patients. You need to evaluate the patient, uh, evaluate the risks. And we're going to talk about a little more uh, as far as the risks go. Um, and also uh, to determine what you think your level of success is going to be with that particular person. Right. You do a risk-benefit analysis, I'm sure, beforehand. And if somebody has major contraindications, they're probably not a candidate for you. But like any procedure, there's going to be some risk. So I know that when I go to my chiropractor, or I don't think I've ever, you know, had the chiropractor say to me that I have a risk of fracture or soft tissue injury, but maybe I just didn't read the forms properly. But is it just because this is much more aggressive than a regular, you know, high velocity joint uh, manipulation, that this is something well, that... Well, the techniques themselves, I, I wouldn't consider them to be more aggressive. I would just consider them to be different. But the issue is that when a patient is sleeping, uh, they have difficulty communicating to you if, if uh, you're doing something in excess. Right. So, of course, the training comes in there, uh, and hopefully the doctor's sensibility comes in there. Uh, we we um, urge them to use sound clinical judgment when they're selecting the patients and also when they're doing the procedure. Um, I oftentimes will tell the doctor, you, you know, sometimes there's a, an intuitive factor, that vo- little voice in your head that says, maybe this is not the person that you should be doing this on, even though they may need it. I, I remember I, I was flying back and forth to, to Georgia years ago to uh, the Atlanta area and working on patients there. And I was working with one of the biggest pain management practices uh, in the state. And uh, they would have me fly in and have patients waiting. I could review the files and talk to the patients, and then uh, we would go forward with the procedure or not. And one of the patients I remember uh, was 
and around 70 or so, I think she had a pacemaker and, and she had some other issues and she was, she was ready to go. Uh, you know, I was really concerned about the outcome, not of the procedure but necessarily, but what her health outcome would be uh, putting her under anesthesia. And so after reviewing the file and talking to her, I, I said something goofy because I, I have a tendency to be goofy sometimes with the patients. And I, I told her I didn't want her to wake up dead. I really was concerned about her um, her welfare and her safety. And, and uh, I would prefer that we found a different route to go. So there, there are risks. I mean, as I mentioned before, um, it's not just, um, you know, fractures and things like that, but there are contraindications, uh, infections. Um, I think respiratory diseases, malignancies, uh, of course, pregnancy, can't do anything with a pregnant person. Uh, I do adjust them, but um, I don't think there's anything you can, certainly can't medicate them and, and certainly wouldn't want to put them under anesthesia. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, as far as, as they go and, and the procedure goes, that's a contraindication. Uh, any tears uh, in joints, ligament tears and things like that are contraindications. So you really have to be careful on, on who you pick as a, as a candidate, but typically the patients are without any contraindications and, um, you know, they just have plateaued as a result of injury or, or uh, problems and, and we move forward. So, so the risks are actually, uh, the nice thing is the risks are very low. Um, when it was first started years ago, anesthesiologists were using succinylcholine, which has a paralytic effect and the, and the patient's cannot breathe, so they need to be intubated. And trying to do this procedure on somebody who was intubated must have been very, very difficult. That was before uh, I knew about the procedure. Uh, Thankfully, I didn't have to uh, involve myself in that. But in in some cases, there's a more aggressive form of uh, anesthesia that can be used. A gaseous uh, one that comes to mind is sevoflurane, which is an inhalant. It allows the patient to go a little deeper, but that's one of those anesthesia that I mentioned that takes longer to recover from. Um, it also uh, makes the patient more groggy. They might have some nausea and things like that, whereas the propofol and Versed combination works very nicely. And, uh, you know, the patients really have no uh, after effects at all. So, but the risks, as I mentioned earlier, are very, very low. We haven't, the, the worst things that I've seen have been uh, fractures or uh, things like that, or uh, one young lady who was doing the procedure down in Florida dislocated somebody's shoulder. And that's probably a little too aggressive, you know. Uh, on, on whole, um, we, we rarely say if the procedure is done right on a patient who uh, needs it, who is safe, who has been evaluated, uh, and they are a good candidate for the procedure, uh, it's terrific. So, um, Negative incidents are extremely rare. Well, this has been really interesting for me because I only learned that this existed uh, whenever Mark got in contact with you maybe a week ago. So this is all very new for me, but very interesting. Before we wrap up, do you have any type of contact information that you would be willing to share with anybody listening who maybe wanted to get more information or wanted to reach out to you? Are you on social media at all? Well, if you if you just Google my name, Dr. Donald Osio, uh, you'll actually come up with some uh, videos of me instructing, which is kind of different. If you Google MUA or manipulation under anesthesia, uh, you'll find doctors doing the techniques. Um, I don't know if that's always the best thing to watch because some of the doctors um, kind of go off on their own and and make alterations to the way they do the procedure, which some are are not as safe, perhaps. Um, but yeah, uh, my my name's simply Dr. Don Alosio, or uh, I have a, uh, a local for my practice. Uh, I work in Elizabeth, New Jersey, so it's elizabethchiropractors.com. I have an email address, of course, if uh, anyone has questions, which is, again, very simple. My name, Dr. Don Alosio at gmail.com. You know, also for physicians or, or patients, uh, they're welcome to call either the office or I give my cell phone. Uh, my cell phone is 862-268-3500 and the office number is 908-289-2300. Well, this is amazing. Thank you so much for talking to us so late in the evening. Mark, is there anything else you want to ask Dr. Don before we wrap up? No, this has been great. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. We we're really happy to learn about this. Or I mean, Mark already knew. Apparently I'm behind, but thank you for sharing all of this information with us. Right on. Thanks a lot. It's been good. You guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists and a Microphone. Peace.